I'm Mike Sheridan and this is The Dell. How are you, Derek? Are you well? I'm well, yeah, thank you. Sorry, I'm a little bit late. Not at all. I really appreciate you taking the time, Derek. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How's everything over there? Uh, this is June 8th we're recording this on. Yeah, things are good. Um, I am, uh, we're moving uh, within Washington, D.C., uh, which is um, a little post-pandemic project. Um, and just got back from a very quick trip to uh, California. Uh, my wife and I got Zoom married or WebEx married last year on our iPad um, and put off a wedding celebration and honeymoon. And so we went to uh, Napa uh, and Sonoma County uh, about a week ago to do a little mini moon situation, uh, which was really fun. So had you not seen your wife in a while? Was she, she was on the other side of the country, was she? Oh, no, no. I was like, <laughs> no, 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 you're no, married? <laughs> no, no, sorry. We live in the same apartment, but we Zoomed or WebExed with the uh, local magistrate in order to have That makes more sense. Ceremony. Yeah, no, this was not a um, like a conference call uh, relationship. Um, we were very much present with each other. So it seems like things have gone back to normal in the US to some degree. I mean, comparative to where we are in Ireland, we're looking at US media, we're looking at the talk shows, people aren't wearing masks indoors, you know, they're not sitting two meters away from each other. Is that a fair assumption? Does it feel like it's kind of getting back to normal? Absolutely. It's getting back to normal. Uh, things have changed so much in the last six months. I mean, January was uh, in many ways the worst month of the entire pandemic in the U.S. Uh, you saw the peak of deaths, peak of cases. Um, and it turns out that the vaccines work spectacularly well um, if you administer them quickly. And we administered them pretty quickly compared to just about every other advanced country. Um, and we have reaped the benefits. Uh, cases are down. Hospitalizations are down. Uh, deaths are down. And then finally, masks are down. Um, people are finally feeling like they can take down their masks, uh, eat inside in restaurants, eat in cafes, um, go to gyms uh, without wearing face coverings. Uh, there was a long period where my gym was open but required face coverings, which look like I understand the uh, the, the, the argument um, for uh, sort of preventing people from breathing exertedly in a, in a shared room. Um, but running on a treadmill uh, with a mask on uh, is not a particularly comfortable thing. So I'm very, very grateful uh, that the vaccines were administered quickly, that they work, and that finally I can uh, go to the gym with a you know, naked face. It's been heavily politicized, I think, but probably more so in the US than anywhere else. But I think it's bled to other countries uh, in the world. Is that because of Trump? Like, is that squarely because of Trump and his, and his rhetoric early on? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with ideology. I think if you look, if you ask people, uh, you know, you have a panel, maybe a thousand people and you ask them, you know, how do you feel about how dangerous the pandemic is? How do you feel about uh, getting a vaccine? How do you feel about wearing face masks? You can stratify that population in all sorts of ways. You can do it with, you know, gender and age and geography. The single best the single variable that best seems to describe the difference in opinion about taking the pandemic seriously, wanting a vaccine, uh, wearing a face mask seems to be ideology. Um, it really is Democrats versus Republicans uh, to, a, to a large extent. And that's, you know, in the abstract, fairly shocking. You know, this is this is a universal event, maybe the single most universal event in modern history, the pandemic. And 
it's rather shocking to have such a universal event break down so clearly between ideology as if ideology or partisan preference is the pair of glasses. You know, it's the lens wear that we cannot take off, uh, Americans at least, that we have to have our partisan ideology fixed to our eyeballs. That's the only way through which we can see reality. And that's a rather shocking and potentially terrifying idea. Uh, that nothing, even the global pulse of a biological crisis, um, can cause Americans to see the same shared reality with the same pair of eyes. It's like we a couple of weeks ago there, there was kind of information on UFOs and stuff just kind of casually coming out <laughs> where the government were like, yeah, we can't explain that. We don't know what that is. And there was a bit of a dialogue kind of online about whether people would co- actually come together if we were invaded as a as a as a global entity and we're not so sure anymore right not so sure anymore i mean uh, i i'm a huge fan of the 1996 blockbuster independence day when we we did come together uh to defeat the alien invaders from whatever you know star system those guys were from uh but i you know i do think that in the abstract it's totally true that you know bonds are forged by antagonists that it is easier in some ways to unite against a common foe, and that in the absence of a common external foe, we unite within against one another, right? Um, I think that's a, that's a relatively persuasive theory and might go to explain why partisanship has, in the U.S., increased uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, but I, uh, I also think that, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's just something really profound about the idea that in the absence of many potentially many other things in the absence of uh, religion, in the absence of a shared external enemy, in the absence of a shared external purpose. You know, what war are we fighting around the world? Um, a lot of Americans might not be able to agree with the answer to that question. We've, we've turned on each other um, and we have used political identity to be the sort of singular tentpole of the way that we conceive of ourselves civically and the way that we look into any issue that might have a political lens or a political valence. And clearly, COVID does, um, you know, you had Democrats and Republicans immediately take opposite sides about what this disease was and the best way to respond to it. And we are still living in the aftermath of that sort of political dividing line when it comes to COVID. And it kind of almost becomes a political statement to wear a mask, which is entirely ridiculous. Although I suppose less so now if the uh, vaccines are starting to take hold, the second yeah. shots are starting to take hold. And I, so this is, you know, I, I try to be only mildly political. I think, you know, it's impossible to, to be without ideology. So I do my best to, to be mildly political, uh, uh, only mildly political. But I really wanted to take my mask off as soon as possible. You know, I, I understand the biological case for, excuse me, the epidemiological case for masks. But I also really wanted to get back to normal as soon as possible. And there was a brief window, I think, in American life on the left, sort of just, you know, the, the broad sort of just left of center America, when things were getting better and a certain sliver of the left was saying, well, things are good enough now that we don't necessarily need to wear masks outside. In fact, the case wearing masks outside doesn't seem particularly strong because this disease is basically an indoor talking disease. It spreads most efficiently inside when people are, are breathing shared air. Um, and that became a sort of internecine debate within the left of, you know, do we uh, wait for the CDC and wait for Fauci to give us the OK to take down our masks or do we follow sort of the, the data where it leads? And I felt that like even there, I was I was picking up on this idea that um, certain urban Democrats 
needed to have their leader tell them, take off your mask, even when the publicly available evidence indicated that mask wearing outside was doing very little. It was like wearing a seatbelt in a parked car, right? Like I'm not against masks, just like I'm not against seatbelts, but I'm also not for giving people tickets for not wearing seatbelts in parked cars, just like I'm not for forcing people to wear masks outside, especially in high vaccination areas. So I think, I think that even among the left, Masks became very political, and people began to, you know, associated mask usage with a a sort of very, you know, finely tuned political ideology. You said something there, and I was going to mention it to you anyway. And I, I think it's brilliant in its simplicity when you said this is an indoor talking disease, which is something that if we had have learned a year ago, if the messaging had have been that clear a year ago, coming from wherever government, coming coming from who, whoever it is, that that could have had a massive ripple effect for the positive, right? Absolutely. This has been one of my biggest bugaboos for the last 12 months is that public communication for this disease, public health communication has been abysmal. And it's been abysmal because it's sometimes been way too complicated and sometimes been just simplistically wrong. And what you want, I think, as a public health communicator is something that is both simple, but contains within that simplicity, a lot of nuance. So where I've landed on the simple statement that contains nuance is COVID-19 is an indoor talking disease. So what does that mean? It means, number one, that it's an indoor disease, that it spreads much more efficiently in indoor, unventilated spaces than it does in outdoor, ventilated spaces. Number two, how do we shed this disease? I remember when I first heard that term, like shedding uh, COVID-19 or you know, shedding SARS-CoV-2, I literally thought of it like a snake, like it was coming out of our pores and our skins, like, you know, like I was shedding COVID from my elbows. No, you spread this disease through your mouth and nose. You spread it through exerted breathing, mostly through talking, especially through singing or shouting. That's how it spreads. So it not only spreads inside, it also spreads through talking or exerted breathing, like heavy breathing in a gym. And if we just communicated that to people, right, this is a disease that is produced from our mouths, that spreads efficiently inside, I think that would allow people to make their own very wise calculation about where they are safe and where they are not safe. If you just tell people, like, don't eat in restaurants, well, that might be epidemiologically valid, but it might just lead families to commingle in small apartments, right? They'll say, oh, the restaurant isn't safe because like the, uh, the tables aren't wiped down. But if we wipe down our apartment, then we can have like 17 friends come in. But it's not about shared space. It's about shared air. And so commingling in your apartment is way more dangerous potentially than a restaurant that has more spaced out tables. So if you, if you just communicated indoor talking disease, I think individuals would have made much more reasonable science-driven decisions that would have kept them safe. The phrase, the science is split on that, is something I hadn't heard before, and I can't stop hearing it now. Uh, is it that this is kind of unfolding in real time? You know, the vaccines have been rushed along and are incredible, obviously, like incredible feat of science. But do we have different experts saying different things? And is that adding to the confusion? We do have different experts saying different things on several topics of the disease. And that is just what science is. That's not an anomaly. That's what science is. It's, it's a scramble out of ignorance, not a convergence upon a one true fact. And it makes sense that science is split because remember what this virus was called in its early months, the novel 
coronavirus. Novel, new. This was a new phenomenon that we were all trying to understand. So initially, we didn't know if it spread on surfaces, but then we learned that it probably doesn't. It spreads much more efficiently through the air. We didn't know necessarily if it uh, uh, you know, might have spread a little bit outside, but then we got more contact tracing studies that seemed to show no, it spreads much more efficiently inside. So I think that you know, public health organizations like the CDC in the U.S., have been a little bit too slow to update um, their early guidance um, with the understanding that we're never probably going to understand like with 100% certainty what a virus is just like six months after it debuts. But we have to communicate to people how they behave in a world on a day-to-day basis with the novel coronavirus swirling around. And I think that even with the, the, the science being split, a lot of public health officials in the U.S. were were too slow to uh, correct their initial misperceptions of the disease. In Ireland at the moment, there's a couple of examples that are thrown out there by, I suppose, not COVID deniers per se, but those maybe more so on the right, where they're kind of saying, look, it's not as deadly as you as we all think it is or as, as it's being reported. And two of the examples that are being handed out uh, are Florida, and Texas. Now, they're both quite different. I know there was a mask mandate lifted in Texas recently by uh, Greg Abbott. But Ron DeSantos in Florida, he lifted restrictions pretty early on. And so we can look at case numbers here, like Google case numbers in Florida, and they seem relatively low comparative to states that shut down. Why is that? It's a great question. So I wrote an article uh, called uh, The Curious Case of Florida's Pandemic Response. Um, where I pointed out that, you know, liberals have for months been predicting that Florida is going to get destroyed by its laissez-faire approach to COVID-19. And then conservatives, on the other hand, have said that, you know, this state is just strongly benefiting from its low, uh, from its, from its basically, from this same laissez-faire treatment. Um, and I think there's some evidence that both sides are a little bit wrong. So first, uh, the liberal side, which is basically my side. If you look at Florida's uh, COVID outcomes, they're all normal, um, or which I should say they're all average. Florida basically has average COVID deaths. It basically has average COVID cases. It basically has average COVID hospitalizations. Uh, and that's a little bit surprising, I guess, considering Florida's elderly population. Um, but one possibility that would explain both how Ron DeSantis has been extremely lax in his COVID restrictions and why Florida has pretty decent outcomes given its old population is that the state policies don't reflect individual behavior among old people in say Orlando. So it's very possible that older populations in Florida have been very careful, have been wearing their masks, have been social distancing, haven't been eating a lot inside in restaurants. Um, So even though we, what we know about Florida is this, you know, Ron DeSantis saying, everyone take off your mask. In fact, a lot of people have been keeping their masks on. And that's one of the reasons why that is netted out to Florida having a basically average COVID outcome. Um, on, the economic, on the economic side, though, you know, it's interesting that Florida doesn't seem to have, you know, particularly uh, low unemployment, hasn't had particularly uh, uh, fantastic uh, small business uh, performance. Um, so really, the strange thing about Florida is that both sides want to hold it up as some extraordinary example that proves their case when, in fact, Florida has average everything, average cases, average deaths, average economic performance.
Is there an element as well with just all of this where, you know, it's it's been a shit show pretty much for a year and a half now at this stage globally, where people are really looking for somebody to blame. And that's kind of kind of conversely or perversely where, you know, it didn't come from a lab came from, where, you know, it jumped from an animal in a Wuhan wet market came from. And the common sense element to that being ignored that, well, there's a lab in Wuhan <laughs> and it deals with this kind of stuff. So it was almost like a, an oxymoron in a way. It was just this. Th- does that does that make sense? Yeah, I thought a lot about this. So, I mean, I have always had stock in the lab leak hypothesis, which is not to say I believed it, you know, in the same way that like when you invest in uh, the stock market and in bonds, you have a portfolio, right? And that portfolio has hedges in it. My portfolio has hedges in it too. I had a little bit of stock in the lab leak hypothesis and I have stock in natural origin. It just, you know, came from a wet market or something like that. Um, the reason why I held stock in the lab leak hypothesis is exactly what you said. Um, the BSL-4 lab in China that experiments with this kind of coronavirus is 27 minutes driving distance from the Wuhan wet market. Um, We don't have very clear evidence of exactly who was patient zero here or where the the bats or some other animal came from. Uh, And so in the absence of that clear evidence, you have to take a strong look at the fact that the lab is right there. Um, At the same time, I think it's interesting because the, the U.S. media seems to have no concept for how to deal with uncertainty. Like the U.S. media doesn't have a a, a good way to communicate. I'm holding stock in this, but I'm not saying it's necessarily true. And as a result, I think, to be honest, liberal mainstream media has done a total flip from the lab leak hypothesis is racist and uh, you cannot even bring it up as a plausible uh, uh, origin for uh, the pandemic to now a lot of people saying, no, I think it's, it's probably the lab leak hypothesis. In fact, I think it's almost, you know, some people are saying like, we have to look at this very, very seriously. It's almost certainly the lab leak hypothesis. When to me, like there's not a lot of, we just don't have a lot of evidence in large part because the Chinese government is not playing ball at all in terms of getting people access to the BSL-4 lab. Um, I think this is a Schrodinger's cat situation, right? Like we just don't, we just don't know. And, and we, we, we aren't very good at communicating the fact that the cat can be both alive and dead at the same time. Um, it can be at, it's absolutely plausible the lab leak hypothesis happened. And we do not have nearly enough evidence to say that it probably happened. Um, we just at this point have to live with the, uh, horrible uncertainty that this, this extraordinary event unprecedented in, 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 in modern times, um, has an origin point that may remain inscrutable to us forever. And I gave the right uh, meme as well about how long does a conspiracy theory take to become true? It was like six to 12 months. I'm like, damn it, you handed them to them at this stage. Something that's kind of been a, like a relatively hot topic, I suppose, just as things are starting to open up here in Ireland. Like the, June 7th was the first day that outdoor hospitality could be opened here. So we were very strict. I think one of the strictest in Western civilization. And obviously there's a lot of frustrations and, and stuff that come along with that. Our chief medical officer, our CMO here, Not that he doesn't believe in antigen testing, but him and Nefers, who are the governing body who advise the government, don't appear to be fans of antigen testing and are very strict on that it needs to be PCR testing. Do you have a take on that, that 
antigen can be like for something like pilot events, pilot gigs, antigen can be something to just tell whether somebody has the virus or they can pass it on or not. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of, of fast antigen testing that uh, I wish countries like the U.S. rolled out larger at scale. Um, even if they're not perfect, uh, they provide a really useful signal. Um, I think about it this way. When you don't know, when you have no idea who's sick, you have to treat everyone as sick, right? Like you ban outdoor dining because you have no idea who has the virus. If, if through some piece of just magic, everyone who had the virus had a shiny blue forehead, then you would just be like, okay, no outdoor dining for you, but okay, yes, outdoor dining for you. You don't have a you know, shiny blue forehead. The tests don't give us a perfect degree of information, but they give us really good information. And they would allow us to differentiate our treatment to various people and therefore keep parts of the economy open for those whose tests haven't come back positive, even if it's an imperfect test. So I, I'm, I also think, frankly, that we probably underrated the effectiveness of the antigen testing. Um, it's not as good as PCR, but it's good enough. If, if we could you know, rewind the clock, I would go back to you know, March of 2020, and I would go full throttle on uh, producing just an extraordinary amount of tests in the U.S., sure, in Ireland, in the U.K., throughout Western Europe, throughout the world. I think it would been really, really useful for allowing individuals to understand with some degree of certainty, whether they're sick, and then to allow communities and populations to go about life as normal as possible. Um, that, that's what I think I would have done. You were quite ahead of the curve as well in terms of writing on, can COVID be passed on by a surface? You were like, I wrote about this before. You were one of the first people to talk about it. And it's a broad question, but you know, where do you see us in six months, you know, globally, or even in terms of the US or in terms of developed countries in Western civilization, where do you see us in six months and come December, January? Is there going to be another surge? Are we going to be, you know, have more tools to deal with it than what we do, but are we going to deal with it better? Um, my guess is that you're likely to see a coronavirus case surge in the winter. Uh, are we talking here about uh, countries that are highly vaccinated or countries that are not vaccinated, like so you know, yeah, South so, Africa and India. So, yeah, so like Western, say Western civilization, so developed countries, okay. US, UK. So countries or, where we, yeah. we expect that there'll be like more than 50% of the population vaccinated in most of these countries. My expectation is that what we're going to see is an increase in cases without a commensurate increase in hospitalizations and deaths. You're already to a certain extent seeing this in the UK with the so-called Delta variant. Um, cases, I think, doubled in the UK in a week from like 2,000 to 4,000 or 3,000 to 6,000, something like that. You look at hospitalizations, pretty much flat. You look at deaths, which are even more of a lagging indicator, that seems pretty flat as well. And so my guess is that the vaccines provide good protection against infections, better protection against hospitalization, and great protection against death, right? So the level of protection gets better, the more severe the outcome is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so in that, in that case, I think it's likely that a seasonal coronavirus, like we should have every reason to think SARS-CoV-2 is, is going to surge a bit in infections in the winter, but that surge in infections won't trickle down into a commensurate surge in hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, that's, that would be my, my bet. I'm going to let you go soon. I really appreciate the time. How important is it that the media cover that those surging cases along with information like 
there's actually the chain's actually been broken between cases and hospitalizations and deaths because the media obviously you know it's a it's an absolute cliche to say if it bleeds it leads but i've been in media for 15 years and it does it does yeah you know it's true and it's not just our fault it's also the you know audiences that as you know as well as i do uh audiences are much more likely to click on something that sends up a five alarm fire to them than something that seems like it's only incrementally important right so they give us the signal that the uh, most negative news is the news that they're going to click on. And so we return the signal that the negative news is what we're going to focus on. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting ecosystem problem. But I, I, try, to, um, I try to make use of another uh, instinct in audiences, which is to read the hell out of uh, stories that say the mainstream is wrong. And so if you can frame... If you can take advantage of the fact that mainstream news tends to have a negativity bias and then react to that by pointing out when that negativity bias is pointing in the wrong direction, you can get a lot of readers that way, too. And I've, and I've tried to be ahead of the curve on sensible optimism throughout the last six months when I really thought the pandemic was taking a very different turn, um, a very good turn. Uh, so I think it's really important Yes, be honest with people when a new variant emerges and it seems to uh, slip through natural immunity a little bit more effectively than the OG coronavirus. Yes, tell people that, but make sure that you give them the full context. Common colds are not something that make front page news, but how many people in Ireland and Dublin and Washington, D.C. do you think get common colds every December? Like approximately a shit ton. It, it, but no one cares. It's not an A1 story. So an increase in cases that has no commensurate increase or almost no increase at all in hospitalizations or deaths is not a pandemic. It's a common cold. And so I think it's really important to point out when the pandemic is the pandemic and when we have succeeded through the magic of the vaccination process to turn it into something that's more like a mild flu or common cold. I am hopeful and mildly optimistic that these vaccines do that for now. We'll see how they wear. We'll see whether the um, the antibody and T cell immunity lasts for you know six months, nine months, a year, three years. Um, but for now, I think that's the situation that we're seeing in the UK and the US um, is that we are succeeding in turning uh, what used to be or what still is in many parts of the world a pandemic into something more like a mild flu. Derek Thompson, I think that's a great uh, place to lead it. A bit of optimism. <laughs> we all need it. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, my pleasure. 